Hello, and welcome to Building Sustainability Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Hart, aka Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Building Sustainability consists of conversations with designers, builders, makers, dreamers, and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. Hello. And welcome to episode 54. This is the first of a two-parter with Craig White of White Design, ModCell, Agile Homes and Lecturer at University of West England. This episode is a more general overview of what inspires his designs, choices uh, and why he chooses straw as his preferred insulation. Uh, If you're listening to this on the release day, then the part two will be out very soon as soon as I can manage, uh, expect it in the next few days. Uh, and that episode focuses more in depth on his work with ModCell, uh, the uh, a panel-based straw bale building company, uh, and Agile Homes, who have a unique way of delivering affordable and healthy homes. So stay tuned for that. Okay, what news? Uh, well... Firstly, uh, last weekend was the mass trespass of the South Downs. 300 of us went for a glorious walk in the countryside and we had a picnic on some council-owned land uh, that is rented out to tenant farmers and thus and thus, people are not allowed on that land, even though it is technically public land. So we sat down, we listened to talks from botanists, poets, travellers, hikers... And even friend of the podcast, Beans on Toast, played a new song about the campaign for the right to roam. So this was all in aid uh, of Landscapes for Freedom, uh, which are campaigning for the right to roam on the South Downs and a part of the national campaign for the right to roam in England, which will give access to the countryside to the entire population, unlocking the mental health benefits and the wonder of nature for all. It was great to catch up with another friend of the podcast, Nick Hayes, author of Trespass, Crossing the Lines That Divide Us, and Flo Hamer of Tiny House fame. I even got to meet some lovely fans of the podcast, which was a treat. And I got to meet an Instagram friend, Georgie, whose work I'm a big, big fan of. Uh, Georgie's project, Building Bluebell, is I mean, it's a work of art. Um, I suggest you check it out. I'll put a link in the bio. Um, and then, oh yeah, and then I topped off the day by jumping in the sea. I mean, could there have been a more perfect day? So the big news, uh, was competition news. Uh, July has been the, the big Patreon subscriber, uh, drive, uh, with all new Patreons for July being, uh, in the draw for a whole pile of handmade prizes from some of my favorite makers. Uh, those are John Mullaney, Jeff Hannis, Dave Cockcroft, and Isla Middleton. Again, links for those makers in the bio. So thank you so much to all the new patrons. Uh, your support really makes a huge difference to me uh, and really keeps the podcast going. There are all the regular running costs to pay for website hosting, equipment, uh, studio hire. Um, but also your support gives me a little money to pay for the time that I dedicate to this podcast. So really Thank you. It helps so much. Right then. So new patrons and apologies for any mispronunciations. We have Spoons by Nature, Eugenia Mompo, Steve Richards, Ron Fick, 
Miriam Johnson, who's a very talented stone carver. Talene Josephson, who you may remember from the Bite Size episodes. Uh, we've got Kirsten, Tony Lotter, Tom Lopez, Charlotte Workman, Pete Lloyd, Tom Wilmot, Mark Fletcher Co., Rosie Mockford, Izzy Byers, Becky Gilling, who's on the Prince's Foundation course at the moment. Uh, we've got Katie Renker, Gideon Marriott, Simon Lovett, Faye Thorley, hello Faye, Alice Favre, Ian Dickinson, and Tom Hughes. Thank you so much to everyone. It's such a big list of you. Thank you. That really, really makes me very pleased. A special shout out to Miriam and Alice, who have both gone for the, the £5 level, uh, which means that they'll be getting a hand-carved spoon from me. Okay, then. Let's do the draw. I'll fire up the old laptop and generate the random number. It is number seven, which is Kirsten. So congratulations, Kirsten. You have won a whole bundle of prizes. I will get those out in the uh, the post to you uh, as soon as possible. There's a second prize draw for a special bowl that Flo Hamer has turned for us. And that's for all the existing patrons who had subscribed before July. And so the winner of that is number 17. That is Henrietta Dale. Congratulations, Henrietta. Um, I will get that bowl in the post to you shortly. Thank you. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. I don't think I can say that enough. If you are listening now and you think you'd like to support the podcast, then go to patreon.com forward slash building sustainability and uh, you can sign up there. And not only do you get to feel good about supporting, but you also get access to nine hours of bonus audio. So a little treat for you. Uh, okay, I think that's enough for me. On to Craig White. I'm not going to say anything at the end of this episode. I will do a full roundup at the end of the next one. So enjoy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. (laughs) 
I'm an architect by training mm -hmm. and um, established uh, the architectural practice white design on the basis of, uh, this would be 22 years ago now, uh, trying to deliver low energy, environmentally friendly buildings. Mm -hmm. The language was the language we used then. Today, you would say sustainable, low carbon, and you might add triple bottom line into that. Uh, that practice managed to hold onto that uh, vision to uh, take a journey into how do we deliver low carbon buildings. And that naturally took us into uh, assessing embodied carbon, uh, looking at health and well-being, looking at the impacts and provenance of all the materials we were working with, and you start to naturally move towards renewable materials and uh, because, uh, you know, they're made of carbon, we can build with carbon. That's the kind of language I would use today. And they are part of, if you like, the circular economy, although 22 years ago that was still not in common parlance. And then uh, as a part of that commitment, being a designer of buildings is one thing, but be being a maker of buildings using those materials uh, is uh, uh, not a natural step for everyone, but a uh, became a step for us. And we set up ModCell, which is the business that makes prefabricated straw bale building systems. We've then arced all the way through to today where I have, uh, with colleagues, set up a new business called Agile Homes that brings together that design, make, and low-carbon agenda uh, using renewable uh, materials, which include timber and straw. Okay. So that would be – so we make buildings, we make low-carbon affordable homes for people in housing need out of natural and renewable materials, timber and straw. Fantastic. So uh, you say renewable materials, and I would understand that as – uh, kind of biomaterials, would you, is that? Yes, the, 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 the language evolves all the time. So bio-based, uh, uh, nutrient cycle-based materials. So for me, renewable materials uh, allows it to be considered in the same kind of language set, set as renewable energy. Yes. So uh, if, if you like, we're riding off of that. Uh, renewable energy people understand renewable materials you could then describe bio-based opens up another world as well which includes palm oil and uh or you know uh heavy industrialized processes as well so uh bio-based if i'm doing research bids renewable materials if i'm talking to real life people in, people in the street <laughs> yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> normal people <laughs> Fantastic, and then and then straw seems to be one of your your sort of key materials. Um, yep. Is that that's fair? Yeah. Um, yes. Why? What's what's your what's the draw of straw for you? Uh, so straw is a byproduct or co-product of making our daily bread, grown wheat straw. If we uh, uh, focus just on wheat straw for the moment, um, and that was also a really important. Uh, part of the choosing straw as opposed to some other field crops that you could use in that it was definitely buy or co-products yeah and that means the uh, 
effectively were picking up something which would have been described as waste. Uh, we used to burn straw. So, I mean, burning will put nutrients back into the soil, but it also puts carbon into the air. And so for me, uh, the choice of materials where possible should be uh, byproducts. And then we are uh, starting to get into the material provenance sector, which say it is better to use buy and co products than it is to uh, insist on a primary field crop product. So uh, uh, the worst example of that is palm oil and the decimation of uh, forestry to uh, introduce a new type of crop into a developing economy that destroys nature. Mm -hmm. We specifically seek to avoid that. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, and then... Go on. Super insulating. Uh, we can't get the insulation value all the way up to the likes of uh, foams and polystyrenes, but they are also toxic for our environment, as Grenfell tragically demonstrated. Mm -hmm. And um, so a bioco product being bought into a way of building which delivers low carbon outcomes in use and is made of carbon itself. So it's actually sequestering or capturing carbon. Nature does that and we do the storage. So those are the kind of motivators yeah. for us. Fantastic. Um, did you consider other other renewable materials i mean so i you've when you've said you know that co-products i was thinking about hemp because that's actually you know planted for for its its purpose it's not a not a co-product as such yeah um is yep. was that something you considered or yes we've worked with hemp uh in the form of hempcrete mm -hmm. we've done prefabricated hempcrete panels um and uh we think it's wonderful and what we found, though, our preference became, uh, in the early days of Modsal, uh, uh, straw bale, lime render on the outside, lime render on the inside, it felt to us a more optimised combination of two materials, delivering a slightly higher performance wall in terms of its U-values. Uh, hempcrete is great. I have no problem with hempcrete at all. But for us, uh, it delivered uh, uh, a combination of outcomes which were better yeah and then you you're involved with uh is it stramit the, the compressed straw board as well uh yes we uh, well no so stramit has a very interesting history okay. uh we we acquired the technology rights to manufacture stramit uh or compressed straw board, as uh, Stramit is a kind of brand. Okay. Uh, compressed straw board is the kind of technical description of that. But uh, the technology around that, all the patents have expired. So we've got all the, uh, if you like, the, the, the shop drawings for the machines. But we were introduced by uh, the, the son of the founder of Stramit, uh, John Moseson, to Ecopanely. Uh, Jan Baresh out in uh, the Czech Republic and it was very obvious that uh, to set up, reset up a manufacturing capacity to do that in the UK would be many, many, many millions of pounds of uh, investment uh -huh. without a market ready to pull it. So we preferred to partner with Jan Baresh at Ecopanely. So we have the 
uh, commercially, we have the import rights for compressed draw board into the UK, and we use that in our build system. Uh-huh. It's it's an interesting one. I, I, my understanding is that it was quite often used to be used in uh, in flat roofs. I've certainly I've been walking uh, yep. down the street in uh, in Canesham where I used to live and saw kind of a, a builder's sort of pile of of mess uh, and was quite surprised yeah, to see a blown straw ball. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, why was it? Why was it particularly used for that? Do you know? Well, uh, so we we, we have uh, because we the, we we know the son of the founder, John Moseson. Uh, the, so uh, basically there are 300,000 buildings in the UK that have used straw board and 80 million square feet were manufactured I- I- in Britain. Right. Uh, what happened was that they were manufacturing that and then had uh, much more control over the specification because its first role was as load-bearing internal walls. Then between 1945, when it started, through to into the 60s and 70s, flat roofs appeared. And that particular product was sold into a distribution network and people started using it on flat roofs, which is uh, with a bit of a bitumen on top. Those are the way they built flat roofs then. And at that point, uh, flat roofs will fail, especially built as they were in the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, with uh, uh, not the attention to detail we might use today. Uh-huh. And then, uh, like with all organic materials, the enemy of organic materials is water. And uh, organic materials will naturally absorb water. And uh, a compressed or board is a material you would choose to invent today, but it is... Uh, it's bond does it doesn't it's not bonded using glues it's bonded using lignin naturally present in straw it activated by heat and pressure softens the lignin the lignin translates to the surface of the straw and creates a high surface low strength bond water on high strength so it does what osb or uh, board does if you if you let osb board get wet it delaminates if you do the same with straw it just does that depressingly fast so we only use uh, straw board uh, we use it in roofs but we only use it in a completely contained uh, three layer of separation to the point at which water can get in so we design our build systems assuming water will get in and then designing how it gets out fantastic so yes it that's its weakness but once you know what its weakness is, you can design uh, to deploy it uh, where you get rid of its weakness and can work with its strength. Yes, absolutely. I feel like I've sort of, uh, my qu- questioning maybe has lent your, led you to be quite defensive uh, or, or sort of put you uh, no, on the defensive. I, I think um, I'm... No, no, no. I, I'm very happy to share all of this, this stuff, because when we work uh, with uh, organic materials, you enter into the world of 
decay mm -hmm. at some point, and that's that's. So we tend to sh we, we we tend to share that information. So uh, it's uh, so I'm not. I hope I wasn't coming. No, no. So I think it was poor wording on my part. But uh, you know, I, All right. I okay, yeah. didn't want you to feel like I was uh, sort of attacking the product. Uh, I'm, I'm interested. No, no, no. In no. I mean, uh, 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 others have done <laughs> more more to do do that than uh, uh, and. Uh, And then also it, it fell out of use because uh, plasterboard appeared. Mm -hmm. uh, plasterboard didn't exist when uh, Stramit was first used. We've used it as a plasterboard replacement. And then plasterboard with stud work comes in for load-bearing walls. And then you, you don't need uh, what the straw board was able, able to do then. So it's, it went through a kind of development cycle and a, and a use cycle. It got used inappropriately, and, um, but that wasn't the cause of its demise. Mm. Plasterboard was, okay. I think, and do you think, historically. Do you think it's, yeah. uh, it's coming back, or can we, can we make it come back? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, I, I have, uh, we, we, we use it in our buildings today, and uh, uh, I, we have, uh, uh, like, uh, like, Uh, using any organic material, you need to know where its failing boundaries are going to be, yes. and then design not to get there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> that's that's it, it's the same. Uh, people, you know, uh, I'm sure you're familiar. If you're working with uh, straw uh, in the Nebraskan method or in prefabricated, you get fire, rats, insects, wolves, and pigs. Those are the questions you get asked mm -hmm. constantly, and uh, and quite rightly. Because you do not want a building that will get blown down by a wolf or catch fire or decay. So uh, these are intuitively natural questions for people to ask. And I've just got routinely good at answering those questions. Yes, you have. Well, I've, I feel at ease. It's a, a, a product I want to good. use. <laughs> So, yeah, so uh, we're going to be building thousands of uh, natural material, uh, renewable material buildings. That's that's a challenge for all of us now to yeah. deal with the climate emergency. Uh, yeah. And do you see that as a a thing that can happen? I mean, is I don't see any sort of large uptake on the the sort of volume house builders uh, at the moment. The construction industry walks into the future backwards. That's what it does. It likes to do what it did last week. It is uh, uh, systemically not an innovating industry. It, 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 and I'm not being rude to the industry. It doesn't really want to be an innovation uh, industry or, or sector. And so is really, really happy doing what it generally does. Uh, however, I would say we will see the system has changed around the construction industry, climate emergency, embodied carbon, the narratives and the amount of interest in embodied carbon has just gone through the mm. roof. And as soon as you start asking about embodied carbon, you start doing the calculations and you naturally move towards timber and renewable materials. You have no other choice to, but to do that. So I'm not interested in what the volume house builders want to do. Uh, Agile, as a new company, is set up to build uh, with straw uh, in the vacuum of the housing crisis. Mm -hmm. So we are going to... I, I, I don't need to convince any other builder to build using straw. We're just going to build. That's what we're going to do. Yeah. So And then the interest, though, has gone through the roof. So there's a huge uh, demand now to know more 
about how you can build using these sorts of materials in a variety of different ways. Yeah. Well, I think, um, so ACAN, I think the work they're doing, and I saw that you're, you're talking on their, their straw natural building uh, Zoom uh, next week, is that? Yep. Yes. Um, I think the work yes. they're doing, and they're pushing the embodied carbon uh, thing. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I mean, people will be familiar, but uh, a developed economy produces 45% of all a developed economy's emissions are linked to the built environment, whether that's uh, in embodied carbon um, or whether that's in operation and use. And uh, so, just you know, uh, concrete is now concrete is the new coal. <laughs> uh, as we get rid of coal power, power stations, concrete is suddenly concrete is not a high carbon material, but we pour a cubic meter of concrete per person on the planet every year. So that's seven point three billion cubic meters of concrete being poured annually, and. At that volume of material use, it has a disproportionately high level of CO2 emissions linked to that, about 9%. So if we are going to decarbonize our future, we will have to switch our material sets. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, in Agile, we never pour concrete. We don't pour foundations in concrete of any type. We work with pads or ground screws. Uh What are the pads made of? Uh, the, uh, the pads are either high density, uh, is it polypropylene? I think, uh, it depends on the ground. Mm-hmm. We will do concrete pads, little sort of 30 centimeter by 30 centimeter con- concrete pads, or we're using steel ground screws, which can then be unscrewed at some point. Yes. Excellent. Yeah. I, I mean, I've got so many uh, questions about agile, but I think we'll, uh, we'll sort of come, come to that a little bit later on. Okay. Um, yep. Yeah. Great. So I guess I'm I'm interested. So you you're, you lecture at uh, UE, don't you? Yes, at the School of Architecture and Planning. There. Yes. And what is it that you? What is your sort of speciality there? Uh, unsurprisingly, <laughs> it's to do with uh, low carbon, sustainable methods of uh, design, and uh, that's all I've ever taught. I've never, you know, I was the sustainability guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I generally teach postgraduate now. Uh, up until recently, I ran a unit called Live, Work, Make. Where should we live? How should we work? What can we make? Which can, synthesizes all of these things. And on the, as far as the university is concerned, that was the sustainability unit. Uh, the, the box ticker. But today... Uh, uh, yes, I don't want to, uh, uh, I'm not, uh, this is not a challenge to the university. <laughs> it's like all universities, climate emergency is declared and then everybody goes, so what do we do now? And what do we do now is embed that into every, every part of our coursework. And UE is innovating in how it teaches that, uh, vertically and horizontally across, uh, uh, it's, it's uh, how it teaches architects, engineers, uh, etc. But uh, I think that's a little bit like trying to turn a super tanker around. It's quite hard. Mm-hmm. So what we're now seeing is uh, uh, m- m- uh, fantastic activism from students. Uh, we're now also working with communities on how do we do smaller projects with communities where that is, uh, sustainability, low carbon agenda is core to it. 
uh, also societal equality, sustainability, triple bottom line stuff. And I think we will see new modules of learning emerging out of that. And then also seeing uh, wonderful work by uh, students themselves setting up their own school of architecture, the Anthropocene School of Architecture with Scott McCauley. Uh, a recent graduate just decided, uh, I think I need to set up a new school. Uh, yeah. And fabul- fabulous. Yeah, big fans of so Scott. Act- so activism. Yeah, a- activism is back, and I think that's really powerful. And I'm seeing as uh, uh, as much, if not more, push from students than I might see from the uh, academic institution itself. Yes, I guess. Uh, yeah, and I'm, in, of... I'm employed by them, and I think they're great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, get the caveats in there. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, w- I, w- I still want to work yeah. with them after this podcast. <laughs> um, do you? Um, something i've seen or sort of the impression i get from outside is that architects uh the training is about designing spaces and uh yeah spaces that feel good and spaces that look good and the actual materials and the you know sort of construction details and things like that is is somewhat lacking from what i've seen in fact well last week i was just talking to an architect friend of mine who couldn't quite grasp the uh, the idea of air tightness and uh drafts and breathability and sort of you know the the fact that they're they're different things uh so yes and she, she you know she's a, a fully qualified very good architect um mm-hmm. so yeah do you think that that is is that still the case or is that changing uh- I think I think that's across the board for architecture and engineering. Effectively, there is a 20th, 20th century teaching model developed since the beginning of that century, with two world wars kind of in between. The, uh, uh, the, the teaching methodology was one of moving uh, uh, specifiers, designers, whatever they're, up, up, a, up an aesthetic tree for some, uh, where perhaps there has been a dislocation and a forgetting of how to how the materiality of buildings and how they get combined. Uh, I would have colleagues shouting at me right now, but uh, the system that's a systems issue on how we educate, and we also put architects uh, in particular through undergraduate and postgraduate and uh, seven years and uh, uh, the depends which school you go to. Uh, some would say some are in, you know, maybe more conceptually focused in their teaching and learning, others more practically focused in their teaching and learning. The reality is we spend longer training architects than we do uh, surgeons, and uh, we need to reconnect how we make into the academic. And uh, it is easier to, to develop an academic program which is conceptually based than it is academically. How do you how do you mark making a straw bale wall or a concrete wall or a steel frame? Uh, so I I I I would not be unkind to anyone having spent their time. And I can I I, I can I could say there are architects and engineers out there who are going to have to relearn faster than what they've learned 
over the last 20, 30 years of their career. This challenge is so great now. Uh, and I, uh, it's, 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 it's a very, very easy uh, stick to hit <laughs> schools of architecture with um, because the, the, the demand all around is, is a lot. We've got to teach them about cultural theory. We've got to teach them about how... You know, how does diversity work in design? How, you know, how do we do that? At, uh, when I was at university, there wasn't the Disability Discrimination Act, you know, so there were steps everywhere. So um, uh, we, there will be a reset. And uh, what I'm hopeful of is that architects are willing to relearn as much as they are uh, young people being taught how to do this. And um, yeah, so I, I, I I, I think it's an easy stick to hit people with. Definitely. Sorry. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> but, uh, 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 yeah, I, I, I think making, that's why, that's why I set up a unit called Live, Work, Make. Uh, so if we can combine those three together, then uh, we can get uh, better, better results. Uh, but we need conceptual thinkers as much as we need airtightness detail, guys. Yeah. You know, we need, we need both. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's the holistic... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, all of it. Yeah, the per- yeah. So for me, systems thinking underpins my work, mm-hmm. and systems thinking accepts that people will come in this, come at this challenge from different angles. How do you synthesize all that into a common purpose, which is uh, taking eighty percent of our carbon emissions out of our built environment? Yeah, yeah. I I do That's feel. Uh, I, I do feel you know bad for for architects if they have gone through their their seven years of of hard training to then you know they're now getting the people poking and saying you know <laughs> go back to school I, and learn more. Yeah, well, I I, I can guarantee. Uh, look, I, I know people who uh, colleagues, uh, uh, architects and engineers who have engineered the most amazing buildings, but they're disasters if you start thinking about carbon. So they are brilliant at one level, but have a carbon impact, which is, uh, so what I would, I would always, my my whole approach to this is to encourage innovation and change and relearning, uh, you know, a a sort of, I don't know, the Pompidou Center is lots of steel and stuff. You could build the Pompidou Center in timber. Mm -hmm. There's no, no doubt about that, but then they weren't being, the challenge wasn't about uh, energy use and carbon emissions. It was another another set of uh, uh, cultural contexts in which they're working. So, yeah, I think this is a challenge for everyone. How do we how do we uh, share the knowledge, do the unlearning and relearning? Because <laughs> there's a lot of unlearning to do yes. in our industry. Yeah, and, and throughout life. Uh, I've only just, and Absolutely. I'm slightly yeah, embarrassed about this, I've only just stopped using uh, plastic sponges. And this is you know, just a day-to-day <laughs> example. Because, yeah, they were just so embedded in my, in my sort of, you know, everything I knew about it's, cleaning it, dishes was in a, a little plastic sponge. Uh, so. <laughs> Being green isn't easy. <laughs> That's the, uh, that, the, the, there's a whole book on that. Being green isn't easy. Yes, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, good. Well, um, I wanted to ask you about sick building syndrome. I think we can start start mm-hmm. there. Um, yep. So yeah, what is, what is it? So uh, sick building syndrome is a, a collection of. Uh, uh, human reactions to uh, built environment, whether that be 
flickering lights, whether that be off-gassing for materials, whether that be no ventilation, so indoor air quality uh, changing. So it's actually a collection of reactions to us as uh, humans in uh, the built environment. And that can also happen outside of buildings as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Ugly buildings, beautiful (laughs) buildings, that affects our our way of looking I don't want to get into that debate because that's that, yes. a weird one at the moment. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so um, sick building syndrome happens to us in lots of different ways. Basically, buildings are bad for you, <laughs> mostly. Yeah, and so uh, what what sort of things can we be doing to to sort of combat that? And because uh, we are, you know, we we we've decided that we're going to be uh, inside for. Lots of periods of time. Yeah. Yes, we kind of we're kind of slightly strange as a species. We put ourselves into artificial darkness inside buildings, but then turn the lights on. Lights yeah, on <laughs> the day, daytime. Yeah, so all of those. So there is a huge amount of contradictions, and yet our basic instinct is to find shelter, at least just to find shelter. So buildings have evolved through uh, all of, all of these changes. So. Uh, I, I think there is, uh, there is a wonderful diagram that shows where humans are comfortable and where the built environment mitigates against that. And there are a series of triangular uh, uh, moisture content, uh, sporing, um, uh, temperature, air movement, air changing, uh, off-gassing, et cetera, et cetera. So we are quite a fussy species when it comes. We, we have a very small window of comfort. And I think the way in which we uh, deal with sick building syndrome is to remember the purpose of a building is to give shelter to humans, to be able to do things, whether they're learning, whether they're living, whether they're sleeping, that effectively is a device for creating shelter. And at that point, if you start from the human and work out, and we're a kind of bag of moisture, basically, uh, you then have to say, okay, so I've got to now work out from that human out to the point at which I stop the rain coming in, keep the warmth in, keep the heat out or whatever we're trying to do. And then doing that in a way which keeps that human in that safe and comfortable space, but then adds to their sense of well-being and place. And then we get into the philosophical about uh, you know, so you could design a very, very awful building that is looking after your health and well-being, or you could design a very beautiful building that's doing the same. So, and then you get into so, what are the materials we use? If you use highly processed materials, we're likely to be off-gassing. If we're using lower and materials nearer their natural uh, lower processing and materials nearer their natural state, there's less risk of uh, formaldehydes, VOCs, uh, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm talking about that because I'm systems thinking. So I'm trying to look at all of those things, light, air, temperature, humidity, all of those things. And that's a sensual question. (laughs) That gets a bit freaky for some people, but effectively the architecture has to be a sensual response to the bag of moisture. (laughs) That we are as humans. So uh, how do we design that? How do we design the walls to breathe? Uh, and not just vapor control, but breathe. How can we work with materials that are not producing uh, VOCs and formaldehydes? And of course, natural materials will produce formaldehydes as well. So it's not just to say, let's build with straw because you don't get these things. You do. 
but they are at much, much lower levels mm-hmm. than if you were using uh, uh, plastics. So, so for me, sick building syndrome defines the problem, but it doesn't help define the solution. So I would rather change the language to how do we design well building syndromes and then you start at the right end of the problem. You start at the solution rather than start with all the problems and try and unhook the problems. You just start in the right place first. Yes. And then, and then we, we go from there. Um, I, ha- I had it described to me. Someone said that there's the what, how, why of, of you know, any sort of problem. And uh, I think the best people start with why. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, so as part of that, so daylight is an interesting one that uh, I have just, I've just sort of, so I've designed, for, you know, for want of a better word, uh, my, my house and I'm building it at the moment. And knowing right. the size of windows, you know, knowing that a window is a weak spot thermally, but that daylight is, you know, it's important for my mental health. Um, I have really struggled with knowing what yeah how how much is too much and uh how much is not enough and all these sort of questions and i think uh, also with um the rise of passive house the means by which we numerically calculate optimal uh spaces and then put a human in and then say okay so for jeffrey actually daylight for mental health is really important and it's the same for all of us uh you, uh, the Human Rights Convention on Torture says if you put a human in a space with 1,000 lux and don't switch the light off, that's torture. Right. That, 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 it's, uh, so we can, we can design buildings that are deemed to be under that legislation or the Human Rights Act uh, uh, torture. Um, but I think the word daylight, you need to unpack it. So there's... Uh, so. I, uh, this window is facing north. Mm -hmm. So I am getting north light in and I'm getting uh, lots of light into the bottom of my eye. And uh, we have sensors on the bottom of our eyes, only recently discovered about 15 years ago. That And that helps define our circadian rhythms. Uh, But if I was facing south now, I'd be doing this and I'd be hot and I'd be sweating. So, uh, but I'm still getting daylights, direct sunlight or reflected north light. So, and I, I think, uh, oh, see, I think the statistic is in the 20th, 20th century, 95% of all buildings were built without any uh, uh, consideration of aspect. I, is it facing north, south, east or west? And of course, buildings face all directions. Yeah. So, uh, we, have, we have forgotten we have forgotten that sun rises in the east and sets in the west and is in the sky vault uh, uh, due, due in, the, in the south. And you can design buildings to uh, meet your comfort and health and well-being by having windows pointing north more than they might be south because then you're, you're getting better quality light in without all of the summertime gain problems that arise uh, and overheat. So daylight for me, uh, we designed the Velux headquarters here in the UK. Uh, Velux stands for ventilation and light, VE ventilation, LUX light. And that's a company whose sole purpose is to ventilate and light. Uh, that sole purpose is to sell more windows. But 
at their corporate core, right in the middle of their brand name, it says Ventilation Light. And uh, I, I found working with that, they're a Danish organization, uh, the power of their story about, they talk about bringing light to life, bringing light to you. And so uh, there are organizations who are uh, trying very hard to make sure that light is understood in all its Sounds like I'm doing an advertorial <laughs> for Vlux. There are other roof windows. Yes. But uh, actually, uh, they work very hard to help you understand how that light could support your uh, health and well-being, how the orientation and aspect of that can be modified to change and support uh, this, uh, lighting the spaces you want to be in. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, again, I'm talking a lot. No, no, that's good. <laughs> that's what you're here for. <laughs> Um, thank you you're listening very well (laughs) (laughs) thank you for listening (laughs) Um, it's interesting uh so because in my design i put very minimal windows on the north side because i was thinking about it being the coldest side of the house and heat loss Uh, i didn't really think about the light quality but then i actually when i chose my my veluxes I put them on the north pitch of the roof because I wanted okay. that non-direct light. Yep. So it was obviously, yep. it was in there somewhere. Uh, 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 we've got to remember that tra- uh, design can be taught or design can be intuitive. Mm. And that for me is a kind of intuitive response. So where do I want this to be? I've got a fantastic photograph of a, a barrel vaulted building, a straw building that we did, which has roof lights, Velux, one pointing due south, one there are several of them pointing north and you can see the color cast right difference one is blue light and one is yellow light i, I put it on instagram fairly recently and when uh, and in one photograph you can see the two different qualities of light in terms of color and uh and any artist would design a studio with their windows facing to the north because they then get consistent light rather than sunlight kind of jumping up yeah. and down and going from 5,000 lux to 300 lux or, or, or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, I think, and so I, have you got it to where you want it to be in terms of your, have you got your balance right? Uh, I don't know. I mean, the windows are ordered. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll be putting them in soon. I'll, uh, I'll find out. Oh, okay. So you're going to, I hope you do a post-occupancy evaluation of your. Ooh, tell, your tell me about that. What, what is that? So post-occupancy evaluation, uh, it, uh, designers of buildings quite like designing the building, photographing them before the client moves in, and then hoping they never hear of it <laughs> again. Uh, fingers crossed, nothing wrong. But post-occupancy evaluation uh, uh, insists that you go back and work out whether the building is performing in the way you want it. And there are two types of post-occupancy evaluation there's a kind of statistical and numerical one which is measuring how much energy it's using and things like that there is another one uh by bill borders called the usable buildings trust where they also don't just look at the numbers but they ask the humans how they feel and that's that uh, human-centered design and uh on paper, you can have a brilliantly designed buildings, but the humans in them, okay, I don't know, it's pointing the wrong way or it's, I don't like the light or, or something like that. And so, uh, again, that systems thinking. 
how do you ask the right questions? You need to have the hard numbers. We need to know carbon emissions, kilowatt hours used, et cetera, et cetera. But we also need to ask the humans because that's the purpose of most buildings. Uh, how do they feel about it? And, and, and accept that the answers won't always be good ones. And then say, okay, so how do I design better? Because post-occupancy evaluation should be the input to the next project mm-hmm. you do. Yeah, and a continual that's how, that's how improvement. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I think yeah, something that's coming to my mind is uh, just, and, and if it sounded like I was knocking architects earlier, uh, it's an incredibly no, okay. complicated uh, topic. <laughs> I knock architects. <laughs> You're allowed yeah, to, yeah. though. No, don't worry, don't worry. I challenge, I'll, I'll, challenge, I'll challenge myself and other architects as hard as anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, so you, back, uh, we started talking a little bit about passive house there. Um, I'm intrigued yep. to know your your views on that, um, whether it's I was I was going to say whether it's good or bad. I don't think it's that binary. No, I think uh, uh, I think it's great. I was in Germany in 1991 when uh, in Darmstadt actually. Uh, so I was hearing about this this guy who was doing stuff uh, <laughs> around energy use and I, I remember seeing somebody saying he's pushed through the pain barrier of insulation to the point at which you don't now need conventional heating systems and that was a kind of really interesting oh wow pushing through the pain barrier of insulation i.e going up with your u values to the point at which you change the system that requires it would demand heating <laughs> So I, I think that's fantastic, and it's brought such rigor to the way we analyze buildings. The challenge I, I have, uh, it, 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 when, when it first started, it was a pass-fail thing. You either got it or you didn't. And I, 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 I was asked to uh, join the founding group for Passive House in the UK. I was busy. I was doing. I was chair of would for good and a non-exec at Trada. So I was just doing too many things, so I couldn't do it. But my, my, my feedback at that point was a pass-fail thing is really demotivating if you don't quite get there. But if you, if you, got, if you got to within 5% of Passive House, you'd already done brilliantly. So yeah, I'm always trying to see, yeah, absolutely. Wow, you're almost <laughs> there. That is brilliant. Not, you didn't get it. <laughs> so um, that binary thing for me, uh, and of course it's gone to Passive House, Passive House Plus and Passive House, uh, whatever the next level is. Uh, um, and uh, the, uh, I think what it's bought is rigor and spreadsheets to architects. <laughs> Architects would normally not go near spreadsheets, you know, the PHP calculations and stuff like that. And I think that has been brilliant because evidence-based work is important. We were the first to certify a passive house straw bale build system. We did that in 2015. Uh, And uh, one of the interesting things was, of course, when you're chasing U-values, there is a kind of natural material set which will take you up this high. And then if you want to go higher, your wall has to get thicker or you have to change your material sets to foams and polystyrenes. And because we were set up to not use those, we would have interesting conversations with the guys out in uh, Germany. Uh, They said, oh, there's some residual coal bridging here. We could could put some... (laughs) 
a polystyrene strip on that. And we were saying, no, 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 we, uh, we could do a wood fiber strip. So there was um, uh, sometimes the number chasing can lead you into material sets that I don't think we should be moving into. And in fact, we need to kind of move away from. But I think that's not about passive house. I think that's about going back to our discussion on why use bio-based or renewable material sets. Um, so that's my view on passive house. Yeah. How, how do you feel as, as, as a thing, passive house for sort of the, uh, the masses, do you think that, uh, well, there's a certain amount of sort of human education needed or user education occupant okay, to, oh, to, to actually I, sort I, of I, use the building efficiently? Yes. Uh, do you think that's a possible thing for the, the average human? Because, I mean, most of the ones I've seen have been built by the people yeah, built and lived in by the by the designer. Uh, yeah, yeah so they're into it. They know exactly what what to do and what not to do. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey there, I'm Mick from the Mick and Pat Show. That's right, and I'm Pat. Looking for a podcast that's like catching up with old friends? Well, you're in luck. We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at The Mick and Pat Show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Indeed. So they're first movers, and they are uh, they, 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 they monitor their own energy use and yes. post it's still only 21 degrees C. Exactly, yes. <laughs> you know, how, how, how warm or cold is your house? I, I switched the heating off and I'm still at 21. Exactly. So all, all of which is great. But that's not the concern of most pe- people, you know, lay, lay, lay public. Yeah. Clearly, that's not to be rude to the lay public, but uh, I don't understand how my, my car works. I, I rely on other people yeah. to understand how my car works. Um, uh, so... There's a very, there are two attitudes to this. One, uh, there's a very common excuse that designers of buildings give is to say it's designed to work, but the users are not, are not using it correctly. Uh, that's a little bit like the <laughs> car industry saying, uh, the reason why people have accidents is because they don't, they're not using the brakes properly. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite an easy thing to say and pass off but in post-occupancy evaluation you'd have to go back and ask the human why 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 and mostly they've never been told or mostly the instructions might be in german or 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 whatever so i would say if the construction industry did uh, if the construction industry designed cars we might actually have square wheels. That's, <laughs> uh, that's how I, 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 you know, or, we, or, or, the, or the, the brakes would be in the back or something like that. We tend to, we tend to not design ergonomically, both for the mental ergonomics of how do you design the systems. So humans are often called the ghosts in the machine, and that architecture is perceived as a machine of elegance, and then. Bloody hell, humans become the ghosts who don't use it properly. And I'm saying, well, maybe we've not designed it properly. So, so why, why, why are they not using it properly? And I'm interested in answering that question. I don't know quite what the answers could be, but certainly designing systems where 
that they're designed to work with humans. And it's not just about instructions. It's, it's, uh, it's about where the control pad is. You know, is it where people would expect it to be? And that's not always the case and things like that. So I think it's a, that's a very complex question. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I enjoy the challenge of saying, how do we design buildings where humans are actually the positive agents of change, not the ones we blame for not understanding how it mm-hmm. works? Because what uh, there's some research by SIPSI, the uh, Building Services uh, Institute, uh, that showed that humans can double energy consumption or halve it if they understand how the controls are working. So we can, we can, and so I'm more interested in, oh, so how do we do the halving? And even in a passive house, you can use less energy by the humans just deciding to switch things off, mm-hmm. you know, not, <laughs> you know. Uh, so uh, I'm interested in how that, 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 that kind of thinking works. And I'll, I, I, I'll, I'll point you at, uh, uh, was at last week's launch of Li- Learning from Lilac. Uh, the University of Westminster, I think, have been working with Lilac, the co-housing project in Leeds. Mm-hmm. We, we were the designers and builders, along with others, of that. And uh, so that straw, super insulated, almost passive house, community-owned uh, renewables, PV, are all really good. But the thing that makes the hair on my neck stand up is how the people choose to live there. And they their carbon footprint is so much lower than I could ever achieve just by designing the system and the fabric of the building. And that is a fantastic unlocking of human potential in that they choose to live a lower life uh, impact lifestyle. The, the, the hardware of the buildings can only take them so far. The rest is, is, is them as humans interacting with each other and deciding they're going to get rid of their cars there or deciding they're going to grow their own food or deciding they're going to uh, uh there's an unbelievable amount of bikes uh, we, we couldn't design enough bike sheds for them <laughs> and still they don't have enough bike sheds so so uh, systems are good but systems that don't take account of humans is, is a failed system yes yeah. fantastic i think that's that's really interesting about the lilac thing i'll say i'll send you it's, it's just come out and it's uh it, it measures many many things over and above carbon and uh uh and stuff it's a it's a, it's quite an inspiring read fantastic yeah that sounds great i, I wondered if uh the because the process of getting lilac to happen was quite a long a long thing wasn't it you know, lots of investment from people I wonder if that sort of self-selects the very best type of, of you know, low-carbon yeah, liver. It does. It does. I mean, uh, 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 but even in that, there's a lesson to kind of say, okay, well, if you design the place in which these people can come together and choose to do that, then there is a multiplier effect of them coming together to do that. A lot of people say, I'd never live in lilac. It's got a laundry and I want to wash, have a washing machine in my house. Uh, but that's okay. At that point, I would say nobody at Lilac was marched in with their arms twisted up behind their back saying we're, they chose to do that. And when you choose to be involved in the design of your spaces and the way you want to live, you can then get multipliers beyond what the hardware can do. Yeah. 
uh, it's a you know, so for some it might say it's an enclave of middle class eco warriors, uh, and they recognise that is a challenge. And uh, but the evidence suggests that when a community chooses to live that way, you can get uh, an abundance of better outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. I can imagine if you were, say, the you know the the laundry thing. If if you were raising an opposition to that idea, you would hear then, you know, maybe ten or fifteen other opinions that's then going to you know yeah. make you a better person because you're more more sort of understanding of of different viewpoints, and then you're going to choose like the the better options, aren't you? Yeah, and so, and some people walked away quite naturally. They just said, "Well, it's a bit too." Oh, oh, oh my god! Uh, you know, people sold their cars to join Lilac because there is a legal obligation to have only uh, half a car per dwelling. They've actually got it down to 0.4 cars per dwelling. So some people chose to sell their vehicle and they carpool. For others, that could be, uh, that could be I'm not coming in on that deal. Uh, and that's okay. That just calibrates slightly differently. So uh, When I would say to people about Lilac, uh, absolutely, you should challenge all of this, but go and have a look, go and stay, go and talk to people. And trust me, you will be cooler about having a laundry (laughs) than than you you could ever imagine. (laughs) And it's about how uh, people live their lives and people live their, most of the, the most common, one of the most common things they say, it's a bit like being on holiday all the time. Right. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that's quite good. Well, that's, yeah, that's what we want. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.